Please rise for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading would be Psalm first. Uh, Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. I'll stand in the ways of sinners. I'll sit in the seers, sit of the mockers. But delight in the law is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by stream or water, which yields its fruits in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Now so, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteousness. For the Lord watch over the way of the righteousness, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. We are concluding our summer in the Psalms with the first Psalm. So what do people want most in life? Kathy Caprino of Forbes magazine contributor surveyed its subscribers and 77 771 respondents answered the question, if you could say in one word what you want more of in life, what would that be? The number one answer was happiness. Ann Marshall, another online contributor, wrote, what do people really and truly want most out of life? After quite a bit of research, in survey after survey on what people want out of life, happiness consistently ranks as the number one popular want. We all want to be happy. And Psalm 1 points us in that direction. The expanded Bible, the Good News Translation, and the New Life Version translate the beginning of Psalm 1 as, Happy are those... The Hallman Bible begins, How happy is the man? Young's literal translation, Oh, the happiness of the one. Each of these versions is trying to capture the essence of the Hebrew word for blessed. But blessed doesn't mean happy. That's not a knock on the translators. They're doing their best to capture the, the psalmist connotation, but no single English word can capture what it means to be blessed. Being blessed is not the same as being happy. Being blessed is something much greater. Let's pray. Our Father, meet us today where we are on our journeys with you. To see you and to value your word. Help us to walk in the path of your word, of those who are blessed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So it's difficult to get our arms around the word blessed because its field of meaning is so vast. So as always, we define a word in the context. And in the context of Psalm 1, the best definition I found of blessed is the joyful spiritual condition of those who are right with God and the pleasure and satisfaction derived from it in spite of all that happens. 
And this aligns perfectly the picture that the psalmist gives us in verses 3 and 4. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they're like chaff that the wind drives away. If we were to describe a tree that is healthy, stable, thriving, and serving its purpose, we would say exactly what the psalmist says here. On the other hand, the wicked, or more specifically, the ungodly, are like chaff. Chaff is the outer covering of grain, of wheat. So when wheat is harvested, it's brought to the threshing floors, it's hit with a sledge, it's brought out where there's wind, it's thrown up into the air, and the chaff is blown away. So the fruit, the grain, falls to the ground and they collect it. Chaff has no value, and it's easily blown away. So we have two pictures of individuals here. People who are spiritually healthy, grounded, thriving, and fulfilling their God-given purpose. They thrive and flourish in season and out of season. In contrast are people who are without a foundation. They're blown around by the cultural worldview of the day and their lives are not grounded in objective truth, so they are easily swayed by the loudest voices. And while they may perform acts of kindness and serve meaningful causes that we can admire, they produce nothing of eternal value. They don't glorify God. They only glorify themselves. So those planted by the streams of God's word bear fruit, internal and external. And internal fruit is described in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We don't see happiness on the list. We see joy We see love, we see peace, we see all the qualities that make up a happy life. Externally, our fruit is what God produces through us in the lives of others. And this fruit is the result of evangelism, discipleship, prayer, and being a spiritual model. Now, we don't expect a newly planted tree to bear fruit immediately. It takes a while. We need patience. And the same would be for our lives. We can't expect all of this fruit immediately after being planted by the Word of God. It will take time in our lives. And we will bear fruit at the right time in the season, God's timing. The leaves of the blessed don't wither. Now, this isn't because they don't face dry, trying, difficult seasons. We will all face these. 
But they don't dry up because they are planted by streams of water that constantly nourish them, no matter how dry the season is around them. And the, the Apostle Paul's an example of this. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you, you see that Paul faced just about every possible calamity and trying. Yet his leaf did not wither. We see this in 2 Corinthians. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul had this attitude. He could live through all of these because he was planted by living water. The psalmist also wrote that the blessed prosper in all they do. Now, if we're materialistic, oh, this, is, this sounds like a dream come true. We're going to be successful in every venture. We're going to prosper financially, relationally, vocationally. We'll be healthy. We'll be wealthy. There are many prosperity pastors who preach this regularly, but that's not what the psalmist is talking about in this context. Prosperity means that we will flourish in our relationship with God and fulfill our divine purpose. If we are spiritual, it is a dream come true. We will be spiritually successful in all that we do. We may not be rewarded financially, but we'll be storing up treasure in heaven. Relationally, we may not be the most popular people in the community, but we are popular and loved by the God of the universe. Vocationally, we may not climb to the top of the ladder in our business, but we will be moving forward in God's business of becoming more like Christ. We may not accomplish as much as others, but what we will produce is that which lasts forever in our lives and the lives of others. Now, none of this can be said of the ungodly who are like chaff. The difference between the blessed and the ungodly is also seen in their eternal future. Verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We all want to be happy in this life. But what about happiness beyond this life, for eternity? Go to a beach. Pick up a grain of sand, then look at the rest of the beach. Try to count the rest of the sand on the beach. And how about the sand in the deserts, in the sand underneath the ocean? See, 
our lives are like one grain of sand compared to all of the sand in the entire world when we begin, when we compare our lives, which are temporal, to eternity. In fact, there is no comparison because eternity never ends. Where are we going to be? Where do we desire to be happy? Here in life, yes. But what about eternity? The psalmist is clear. The ungodly will not stand before God in judgment. They will be condemned. The righteous are known by God. They will have an eternal, intimate, loving relationship with God and with the congregation of the righteous. Now, as we study the rest of Scripture, we realize that none of us can stand before God in our own personal righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. But believers stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because Christ has died for our sins, he has forgiven us, and he has clothed us with his righteousness. The righteous described in this psalm are righteous in God's salvation, in Christ. And as they live out their lives, they respond to that grace and love by living for God. The psalmist points to the way of blessing. How can we be like that tree planted by the streams? By first warning us about the wrong path. Verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. See, there's a progression we see in this verse. First, we walk in the counsel of the wicked. Then we stand in the path of sinners. And then we sit down in the seat of scoffers. We don't sit down in the seat of scoffers without first beginning to live and listen to the counsel of the wicked. So in Psalm 1, the, the wicked are not those who are evil to the core. We're talking about the counsel. They may be kind, they may have the best intentions at heart, but the problem is their counsel is driven by a secular perspective and a humanistic value system. Psalm 10 describes the wicked as those not seeking God. They say there is no God. They propound God will not hold us accountable. Psalm 36 sums up their attitude. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So the wicked can be described better as the ungodly, the secular, who either deny the existence of God or believe he's irrelevant. One writer describes the wicked as those who seek independence from God. Those who are, have only a human or earthly perspective on life. Those who live according to the world standards and not God's. Since they're dismissing God, 
They have no foundation upon which to build their morality or their ethics. Existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre admitted this. I quote, The existentialist finds it extremely embarrassing that God does not exist. For there disappears with him all possibility of finding values. It's nowhere written that good exists, that one must be honest, that one must not lie, since there is now, since we are now upon the plane where there are only men. What's he said? There's no foundation to our values if there is no God. Because who is it that says, do not lie, tell the truth? It's God. Once we remove God, we create our own value system and define our own purpose. If you want to see what happens when people do right in their own eyes, read the book of Judges. You see the consequences, not only for your life, but for the lives that you touch. Isaiah 50, 20 warns us what happens when people move away from God. They call evil good and good evil. We're seeing that in our culture today as God is being removed more and more. When we live by the counsel of those who shun God, we will eventually stand in the way of sinners because a secular worldview accepts and even encourages sin. We see this in Romans 1 very clearly. And once we're comfortable in sin, we're going to sit in the seat of scoffers. The word translated scoffer can also mean ambassador. So a scoffer is one who not only disagrees with an idea, but he considers himself an ambassador for opposing ideas. So a scoffer is actually an ambassador for secularism, a critic of Christianity, a critic of God. A scoffer ridicules all who stand against him and actively recruits others to join his side. It begins by accepting the worldview of our culture. Now, does this mean that there's no value at all in, the, in counsel that come from people who aren't Christians? No. See, counselors are made in the image of God. And some of those values, divine values, are instilled in them and may come out in their counseling. What we need to realize is that we need to be able to discern between counsel that aligns with God's values, God's word, and that which moves us away from God's counsel and word. And by the way, Christians can give secular counsel. They can have, could have bought into the secular temporal values and counsel you from that direction. So no matter what counsel you receive, you want to filter it through God's word. There are two paths. 
The psalmist warns us against the one that's driven by godless counsel and points us to the counselor informed by the word of God. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Whatever shapes our thinking shapes our lives. The only way for a person to reject the counsel of the ungodly, which bombards us from every side, is to be continually meditating on, thinking about, chewing on the Word of God and how it applies to our lives. The Scriptures, represented by the law in our passage, are the streams by which we need to be planted if we are to bear fruit in the season and our lives, our life, leaves not wither. So there, there's two key words in this passage, delight and meditate. So I once asked a class of preteens, who delights in God's word? They were very honest. Not one kid raised his hand or her hand. So then I asked, who would like to delight in God's word? Half the class did raise their hands. There's something to work with. We can delight in God's word because it is a treasure. Psalm 19 brings it out. It revives our souls. It makes us wise. It rejoices the heart and enlightens our eyes. It's more to be desired than gold. It's sweeter than honey. Do you see God's word that way? It is that. So when we open the, the scriptures, we are meeting with God. He is speaking to us. He listens to our hearts as we read it. And we can read his heart as we understand it. He speaks of forgiveness and salvation, comfort and consolation. He gives the way of joy, the way of life, an understanding of him, a drawing into relationship with him through the word of God. We should delight in it. The word of grace and truth are more precious than gold, silver, pearls, or diamonds. Read it with that in mind. Search for the treasure that God has for you each time you open your Bibles and you'll delight in his word. We are to meditate on it day and night. The Hebrew word for meditate literally means to moan, utter, speak, think, and plan. So we think about it. We see how it fits into our lives. And then we speak it. So it takes study. It takes reading, study, listening to, memorizing, and contemplating what God is saying to us and how we should live it out. When we finish reading God's word, we should be thinking of how that is going to make a difference in our lives, generally, but also specifically in what's going to take place throughout the day. Meditating on God's word embeds it in our minds and hearts 
so that we're ready to speak it into our lives at any moment of the day or the night. Joshua 1.9 captures this. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you'll be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you'll make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. So if we internalize the word of God so that it naturally speaks to every situation, we will be prepared for every situation. When we're overwhelmed, we can know God is for us. When life seems to be falling apart, we can remember God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. When we're anxious, we can remember, cast your anxieties on him. He cares for you. When facing temptation, we can pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When feeling marginalized and judged for standing for Christ, remember, in him is life. And life is the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. These are not magical incantations. They need to be truths that are embedded into our lives that we bring to the surface because we've meditated on God's word. When we do that, we are planting ourselves by the streams of water. In John 15, Jesus gives a similar image of the path to joy, fruitfulness, and the glory of God. Instead of a tree planted by streams, he images branches nourished by the vine. He declared, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus is the word of God come in the flesh. All of scripture either points to him forward or backwards to him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the pathway to God himself. Delight in and meditate on his words. Delight in and meditate on his love. Delight and meditate on the perfect joy that he has with the Father that he offers to us. Meditate on his sacrifice and on his resurrection. Abide in him and you will bear much fruit. You will have something much greater than happiness. Let's pray. Father, Lord, how often I have read your word to get through it out of duty. Oh, Lord, may that never be again. 
May that word always come alive through your spirit. Speak to me that you might change my life. You might change our lives through that word so that we would be trees planted by a living stream, your word and your son, in whose name we pray, amen.